بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We are looking at what is Islam by Shahab Ahmad. So a little bit about, about uh, Shahab Ahmad. He passed away just sh- almost immediately before this book came out. Uh, he was an associate professor at Harvard of Islamic Studies. And uh, I think he was uh, ethnically Desi, but I want to say there's some Malaysian connection too, uh, either in terms of his education or his background. And... Um, his dissertation, I think for undergrad, he went to Princeton, or for grad school for his, his PhD, he went to Princeton. And it's clear uh, from his writings that he has extensive traditional Islamic training too. So he's probably also an alim. And he, uh, his dissertation for his PhD was about this event of the Satanic Verses, not Salman Rushdie's book, but this event at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, where, according to the narrations, um, uh, Shaitan sticks in some fake ayahs onto uh, the Prophet's tongue. And what Shahab Ahmad's dissertation is doing is looking at the whole evolution of how those ayahs were interpreted over the course of Islamic history. You know, which they were, they were studied for, for most of Islamic history until a couple centuries ago, and then they started getting kind of like removed from, from the conversation. And he gets into a little bit of why. Um, that book was just published um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, not too long ago. Um, but the dissertation itself is, is from maybe you know, ten years ago. Um, but but that's him, you know. Um, this book itself, uh, you know, just came out uh, not too long ago, and as we see, as we'll see in when we get into the reading, um, when he's saying what is Islam, the first thing to notice is that he's putting Islam in the title in, in quotation marks, right? Uh, I don't know if you can see it on that cover. <laughs> yeah. So, so when he's saying what is Islam in quotes, he's kind of summing up the whole question of the book. And basically... If I were to ask each of you, or if you went around asking people, asking Muslims, what is Islam, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers, but there's probably going to be some consistency. Okay? Like, you know, belief in Allah, belief in the Prophet, peace be upon him, belief in the Day of Judgment, you don't do these things, stuff like that, right? Uh, you have the Quran, so forth and so on. But he's saying when you look at Islamic history, you find Muslims doing all kinds of different practices that they're identifying as religious practices, um, um, that others would say, well, that's haram, you can't even do that, right? And we'll see this in an anecdote right at the beginning of, of, of this, uh, this book. And, and so he's not looking to see what is going to get us into paradise, according to Islam. He's saying that we have this phenomenon of history that we call Islam, but how do we figure out what Islam is, Right? So if you grew up in Chicago, if you're a Muslim in Chicago, you're going you're gonna to focus on the masjids and, you know, a certain type of religious practice. Okay. But even if we talk about Islam in Chicago, it is said that there's as much as 400,000 Muslims in Chicago. We've been saying that for about 30 years, right? So who knows how many Muslims there are. Um, even um, how do we define what a Muslim is? Um, is it the person who shows up for fajr at, at the masjid? Right? Is it the person who, who is fasting right now? Um, is it the person who doesn't eat pork? Um, because you're going to find people who are even potentially active in the religious Muslim community who might contradict every one of these. And we just don't really talk about it. Um, or you have someone like uh, Alama Iqbal, who is, at least from the perspective of the Pakistanis, you know, one of the biggest figures of the past century. Um, who would probably not, if he were alive right now in Chicago, he would probably not be allowed to give a Jummah Khutbah in almost any masjid in Chicago, in part because he didn't have a beard, he has this big Punjabi mustache, and then he drinks, right? And by drinks, I'm not saying Ruabza, right? And um, yet, the same people who would not allow such a person to be giving a Jummah Khutbah will... Uh, memorize his poetry and think of it as just a few steps below the Quran. Mm-hmm. That's how people speak about Iqbal. Right? That's an easy example. Uh, we're going to see some other fascinating stuff here. And so even think about this. Uh, um, some of this I had a conversation with, uh, with um, students in a different class last week 
um, the, uh, uh, in a different school, I was teaching uh, a class on, on Islam, Muslims and stuff, and we were talking about the Quran, and I had students in the class, Daisy students, last name Hussein, um, who in their life, they basically, they couldn't recognize Al-Fatiha. They couldn't recognize right? Like, I played it, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we heard something like that before, you know, from our dad. Um, but if you were to look at them, they look like, you know, every other Desi, Desi undergrad female student. Um, and the question is, is that closer to the norm mm -hmm. uh, of what are Muslims in Chicago? Or is closer to the norm what we often think of would be someone who has some religious practice as we think of it, right? It's actually a more difficult question to swallow because my suspicion is that if we look at Islam across the country, those girls are closer to the norm, right? Girls who can't even recognize, or students or people who can't even recognize the most commonly read passages of the Quran, right? Who may only enter a masjid uh, when someone dies, right? I'm suggesting in terms of Islam across America, that might actually be closer to the norm, you know? Um, uh, even though the people you might interact with who self-identify as Muslim might be far, far more religious than that. Um, um, Islam in Chicago, if we speak of the city of Chicago, uh, it's harder to figure out what, what is closer to the norm, especially if we include the immigrant populations. I'm saying recent immigrants, um, like those who are at MCC, which are North Africans, East Africans, and such. Um, still, it's a difficult question to answer. And so he has a thousand-page book on this trying to explore it. Yeah. So uh, let's jump right in. Let's go to the page that begins, what is Islam? Or it's part one questions. And then I'll, I'll have all y'all read. Uh, you to read first, Laura? Sure. What is Islam? Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. Okay, so this is Walt Whitman who's a pagan. And, but this sums up the basic point of the whole text, right? That that which we call Islam, if we define it according to the people, not according to the Quran or according to what is recorded as hadith and such, then you will find contradiction upon contradiction upon contradiction, or you'll find all kinds of different multitudes of, of variations. Yeah. Um, okay, continue. Some years ago, I attended a dinner at Princeton University where I witnessed a revealing exchange between an eminent European philosopher who was visiting from Cambridge and a Muslim scholar who was seated next to him. The Muslim colleague was indulging in a glass of wine. Evidently troubled by this, the distinguished Don eventually asked his dining companion if he might be so bold as to venture a personal question. Do you consider yourself a Muslim? Yes, came the reply. How come, then, you are drinking wine? The Muslim colleague smiled gently. My family have been Muslims for a thousand years, he said, during which time we have always been drinking wine. An expression of distress appeared on the learned logician's pale countenance, prompting the further clarification. You see, we are Muslim wine drinkers. The questioner looked bewildered. I don't understand, he said. Yes, I know, replied his native informant, but I do. Uh-huh. What do you think about this? Uh, Sajid, can you conceive of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what I forgot the, um, is that this, uh, the, the, Muslims, uh, the Muslim in this story is a scholar and <laughs> drinks wine. And he says his family's been drinking wine for centuries. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't mind that the cover, this coin, uh -huh. is some Mughal Empire emperor. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think it's a glass of wine in his hand right there, right? Oh, okay. Probably. Yeah, I never even looked, so yeah. that's making the point, too. Yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, let's continue. <laughs> Some non-Muslim fr oh, non friends of mine spent a long afternoon at the magnificent new galleries of the art of the Arab lands, Turkey, Iran, Central Asia, and later South Asia, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. They gush at the dazzling richness and variety of the artifacts on display, and expressed the hope that, after seeing firsthand that Muslims were capable of such exquisite expressions of beauty, Americans and others would emerge better disposed towards Islam. But there's just one thing I don't understand, one of them, an executive at the New York Times, said to me. If it's not an inappropriate question, what did these objects actually mean to the people in the societies where they originate? What is this art actually about? What does it have to do with Islam? Okay. So let's rephrase this. If I were to ask you, <clears throat> what is Islamic art? 
How would you answer that question? Did we ever cover it in Faith Foundations? It was always a chapter I thought about doing, but I don't remember if we ever did. I don't think we did. Okay. okay. So how would you answer that question? What is Islamic art? I think of devotional things, you know. Okay. Give me an example. Like calligraphy. Okay. Um, of the Quran and stuff. Okay. Masajid architecture. Okay. Things like that. Okay, so this is very interesting because calligraphy historically was regarded as an innovation. Oh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I miss this kind of <laughs> So, so... Now calligraphy is, is super common, almost as like our representative of Islamic art, yeah. and it was considered to be an innovation, like not a positive innovation. And then when you're saying the architecture, give me specific uh, pieces or, of architecture or forms. What would you say? Like just the grandeur of Masajid, like in Turkey or whatever, because... Um, so a I big mosque, is that what you're saying? Yeah, a big intricate mosque. Okay, okay. and what does this mosque look like? Okay, yeah, but what does that look like? Flesh <laughs> carpet, um, okay. tiled pillars, um, okay. calligraphy on the ceilings and walls. Okay. Um, colors, patterns. Okay, so how many how many how many Islamic centers in Chicago uh, have you just described? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> you were saying something. No. Yeah. Um. So okay, so carpets, tiles, and the pillars. And then eyes and ceilings. Okay. Anything else? Like when we speak of Islamic art. Domes. Domes. Okay. <laughs> um, which is interesting because domes were, were basically taken from Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and what about geometric shapes? Um, <laughs> like which ones in particular? <laughs> we claim them all. Yeah, they're... Uh, yeah, I feel like... <laughs> um, and that's basically part of the question. Minarets we took from the pagans. Um, what else? Uh, there's another big artistic form that I'm forgetting right now. Um, yeah, it'll come back to me, inshallah. But yeah. And so, uh, so then the question becomes, what makes it Islamic? It could be the function of it being devotional. Um, but, uh, how do we define what is devotional then? Right. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, would you say a, a, a movie... Um, about the prophet peace be upon him, would that be Islamic art? What do you think? Yes? I think it could be, but like, it would violate one of the rules that we have about avoiding someone who's held in a you know, high position. Okay. And, um, wait, 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 say it again. What is the rule that you're saying? Like avoiding imagery of the prophet. Oh, okay, okay. Idolization. Okay, so so two two responses to that point. The message, you know, which came out back in like seventy seven, um, it doesn't depict him. Right. Okay. On the flip side, if you look throughout Islamic history, you see all kinds of paintings of the prophet peace be upon him done by religious people. Really. <laughs> yeah. In some of those faces or some of those paintings, he will have a face. In other of those paintings, uh, he won't have a face. Um, and, or there'll be fire all around him, uh, which today we might say that's kind of strange, but it was representing, you know, like the light of guidance and such, or other, other, other meanings. But yeah, that we also have throughout uh, Islamic history. We even have that in many parts of the Muslim world today. But yeah, when we think of Islam, as we formulate in Chicago, we'd say, no images and definitely no images of the Prophet, peace be upon him. <laughs> so this is, this is the point that, that he's making. Uh, what is Islamic art actually about? What is it? What is it that makes something Islamic? So another way to think about this, uh, it might be, maybe the person who made it is Muslim. Uh, but most of the, uh, the mosques in Chicago were designed by non-Muslims. You know, I was, I was uh, up in Barrington yesterday, and, no, Saturday, and they uh, uh, were giving a presentation on this whole renovation they're going to do and build their whole mosque dome and everything, and it's going to have, you know, a big prayer hall, and the focus is more going to be towards learning, but it will have social space and stuff, but the designers were Christians. Wow. And, yeah, that's, uh, these are exactly the, the questions that we're raising. Let's get to the third story. An Arab friend of mine tells the story of her engagement to her South Asian future husband. The prospective fathers-in-law, who had never met, had to speak to each other by means of an international telephone call to formalize the matter. 
Neither spoke the other's native language. Both spoke some English, but not especially well, and neither was familiar with the other's culture. The Arab gentleman was a self-declared agnostic, while the South Asian practiced a semi-observant sort of traditional piety, of the variety I once heard characterized by the expression, he says his prayers just often enough to keep his wife happy. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, given the state of mutual forgiveness, or foreignness, my friend was more than a little apprehensive as to how the conversation would unfold. What happened, she asked her father as soon as it was over. Did you understand each other? Of course we understood each other, he replied. We are both Muslims. Uh-huh. So, a couple big points here. They understood each other, right? Even though they're coming from different languages, different cultures. But how, are, how is their Islam de, um, described? One is an agnostic, and yet he's calling himself Muslim. And the other one, you know, prays just enough to make his wife happy, right? Meaning, until, like, you know, as long as his wife doesn't bother him, he's not praying, mm -hmm. right? And so he's defining himself as Muslim. Um, would they call themselves good Muslim? Maybe not. Or maybe they'd say, you know, you know everyone's at their own different level, right? But that's, uh, all these, these, these anecdotes are illustrating this big question. How do we figure out what Islam is. Right? We would say there's a textbook Sunni answer, there's a textbook Shia answer, and then in these smaller sectarian groups like the Ahmadiyya Nation of Islam, they have particular answers, and those answers are a lot more idealistic than real. Or they are prescriptions, meaning this is what you're supposed to be to be a Muslim. Okay? I'll give you another example that I don't recall being discussed in this book. Uh, from a textbook Sunni perspective, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in Shia tradition. Um, okay, so suppose you have uh, a Muslim who kills a bunch of people, a terrorist, okay, and believes that he's doing it in the name of Islam. Okay, in this process of killing people, does this person then automatically become an apostate? Meaning, do they cancel out their Islam um, because they've killed people? What do you think? No. No, why? Because it would be more complicated than that. Okay, what does that mean? Like, it's not, I mean, killing is bad, but that's not just the only aspect okay. to be looked at. Okay. Like, like, it doesn't automatically cancel it. Okay. So, in terms of textbook Sunni thought, that person's still a Muslim. Okay. That you kill a person, you are still a Muslim. You kill 500 people, you are still a Muslim. Okay. Uh, but, let's say you are, in terms of your character, perfect, okay? But if you say you don't have to pray Isha, okay, you have apostated, okay? Because there, then you're saying uh, that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was wrong, who is telling us it's mandatory to pray this, okay? And uh, then you're basically saying that this is, you know, either uh, he's wrong or he's lying, okay? Which means you are, by effect, saying that he's not the prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Did you say that that in itself is a character flaw, so the person does not have perfect character? I mean, that would be uh, an interpretation of that, but let's say, you know, the person's character is the same as everyone else, okay? Meaning, that's, I'm saying basically he's not a killer, okay? Um, and let's say he even prays all of his Isha prayers, but he says it's voluntary, okay? Yeah. It's not mandatory. That is apostasy in textbook Sunni thought, right? Yet the terrorist is still a Muslim, okay? Um, or in textbook Sunni thought, let's say this person uh, makes uh, all their prayers and prays the five and such, but says, you know, uh, Elijah Muhammad um, is... is um, is a messenger of God, okay? Textbooks only a thought, textbooks only a thought, okay, that person is not a Muslim, right? And so that's how it gets complicated, right? Because also, it's a different system of measurement, right? We're talking about something related to salvation as opposed to social identity, okay? Mm -hmm. The book is more about social identity. Okay, let's get into uh, chapter one. Uh, Ariane, you want to read? Sure. Six questions about Islam. Six questions about Islam. Islam's submission, total surrender to God, mazdar, verbal noun, of the 
fourth form of the root SLM. The one who submits to God is the Muslim. Okay, so according to the Encyclopedia of Islam, here's one definition, just based on linguistics, which is often how we answer a lot of things uh, in contemporary Islam in Chicago. Okay, how about the next quote? After their prophet, the people disagreed about many things. Some of them led others astray, while some dissociated themselves from others. Thus, they became distinct groups and dis- dis- disparate. disparate parties. So different parties, yeah. Except that Islam gathers them together and encompasses them all. Okay, so Abu Hassan al-Ashari, he's from about 300 years after the prophet, peace be upon him. And he comes up with this term called Islamiyin. <laughs> And so, back to the example of the nation of Islam. In textbook, in textbook Sunni thought, and in textbook Shia thought, okay, uh, on the three most central issues, the nation of Islam is wrong. Um, so, the most central issue, the nature of God, they say that, that Allah came in the form of a man. Okay? Um, and then number two, that Elijah Muhammad is a messenger of God. Okay? And then number three, there's no day of judgment. Okay? So... In terms of textbook Sunni Shia Islam, um, they would, the Nation of Islam members, even though they consider themselves to be Muslim, they're not Muslim. Okay? But any member of the Nation of Islam wholeheartedly, con- they consider themselves to be Muslim. They wholeheartedly look at all of us as their brothers and sisters, and they look at themselves as our brothers and sisters. Okay? And this is something that began even 200 years prior to Abu Hassan al-Ashari. This goes all the way back to the era of Abu Hanifa, that you had all these people who are self-identifying as Muslim, and he's looking at their theology, and he's saying there's some fundamental problems in their theology, in their doctrine. Okay? And so uh, Abu Hassan al-Ashari, he comes up with this title, Islamiyin, which would be basically like the, the people of Islam, um, as a, a, uh, like a, a general title to include all these different types of people. Okay, yes. Are we also supposed to consider, like, if somebody calls themselves, if they identify themselves as a Muslim, aren't we supposed to consider them a Muslim? Well, I mean, when would it really actually play out, like, practically speaking? Well, I'm when saying, would like, it matter? Like, Nation of Islam, for example. Okay. I know we've had conversations in some of my classes okay. where a lot of Muslims don't consider them Muslims, okay. but then they're saying that they're Muslims. Yeah. So if they're saying salam to you, or if they're talking to you about the religion, uh-huh. even though we don't fundamentally agree on certain things just because they say they're Muslim like I don't have the right to say they're not um so okay so let's say cause it's like you know how when they say religion is like personal okay that type of thing where like okay. they're coming from their own realm and okay. so they say they're Muslim and although fundamentally we would disagree and we would you know I probably wouldn't consider them Muslim or whatever um if they if they're coming to me and they're saying that they're Muslim then I would treat them as a Muslim. Like, I wouldn't sit there and argue okay. with them about that. Okay. Any thoughts? What do you think? Because I think this is a, a very, very common big question of our time um, in our era. Or here, let me, let me add some, some dimensions to it. Okay. So, let's say you know somebody's a member of the Nation of Islam, they're hardcore members of the Nation of, the Nation of Islam, and they say, Islam alaikum to you. And you're saying, you'd say, you would say, walaikum as yeah. yeah. Okay. Now let's shift it. Uh, go back to the terrorist example. So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, Osama bin Laden is walking down the street. Okay. Uh, who's, who's like the, the super villain right now? Okay, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who's the head of ISIS. Let's say he's walking down the street. Ah, let's say Mullah Omar is walking down the street from Afghanistan. Okay. okay. And Wait, who's he? I don't even know him. Head of the Taliban. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and he's walking down the street, and he, said, he sees you, and he says, As-salamu alaykum to you. Would you say, walaykum as-salam? I mean, if I recognize uh-huh, see, him... <laughs> see. Okay, now you're already adding qualifications. Okay. If I recognize him, then I may or may not, because he's a terrorist he's going to kill me. Okay, but his theology evil. is closer to yours. Doesn't his matter. doctrine is closer to yours. No, but it's not about the doctrine. Yeah. Like, for it example, is mandatory in the Quran if someone says salam to you to so respond. So I would like, whisper it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do half the time when I'm walking down like okay. downtown or something. There Why are people is... who say salam, but okay. I'm not sure if they're... I don't, it doesn't matter to me necessarily, but sometimes I think about it, I'm like, are they a nation of Islam, are they, you okay. know, whatever. Okay. Um, men, generally, and if they say salam, like, I'll whisper it back because okay. it's mandatory to say salam. Okay. It's mandatory to say it equal or better. So you can argue mm. that at the volume that they do it to you, you, have, you would have to do it back to them. <laughs> okay, but if somebody, I mean, if somebody argues with me, that's different, but, like, I'm not mm. going to. I'm okay. in danger. Okay. 
So now let's take the point a step further. Okay. Okay. So we're not speaking about real you. We'll talk about this hypothetical person okay. who is saying that, all right, if, you know, Osama bin Laden happens to be walking down the street, you know, I'm at most going to whisper salam back, right? Uh, but if a member of the nation is walking down the street who's never killed anyone, never plans to kill anyone, um, I will say walaikum salam back, okay? Um, but then when we, yes, yeah. No, I'm just thinking my mom's always saying salam. Okay, to that's people. a third. That's a third scenario, right? What if it's a non-Muslim? Good. So, so like for example, on Twitter, like three days ago, uh, a person self-identifying as Mormon, and their whole feed is like LDS Society or something mm -hmm. like that, Latter Day Saint Society. He says, "Brother Omar Muzaffar, I offer you the greet, the most noble greeting, Assalamu Alaikum." Okay. And it was really nice. It just out of nowhere. And it didn't seem like he was preaching or anything on me or trying to convert me or anything. <laughs> now, uh, now, what was the, the example I was just going to give? Um, so, Osama bin Laden, the Nation of Islam guy. And then, um, um, oh, okay, yeah, that's what it is. So, the Nation of Islam guy, we can say, by virtue of their belief, okay, is insulting God and is insulting the Prophet, peace be upon him. But we're saying, yeah, we're going to say salam to, to that person. Other person is still saying God is supreme, uh, meaning the first person is insulting God by saying that, okay, or uh, that, uh, saying, you're wrong. This other guy is also a prophet. Okay? And then you have Nisha of Islam, whose belief uh, lines up with ours about God and the Prophet, peace be upon him. Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden, yeah, Osama bin Laden. Uh, although we might argue, well, that person is insulting God by claiming to be religious and is disobeying, okay? although that person believes they're obeying, which one's worse or which one's better? Okay. Nation of Islam is better. Because they're not killing anyone. Because they're not killing anyone, because okay. um, I guess you don't know that they're not killing anyone. That's also I mean, I mean, I mean, we're going to assume they're not killing like, anyone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, yeah. I'm thinking, like, if I just say salam to them, if my response was to be something positive in their life uh -huh. and to have them maybe like question their beliefs and uh -huh. slowly like go towards the Muslim community, uh -huh. then I've done something good. Okay. Or you say salam to them and they think, wow, she accepts me as a Muslim. I don't need to change anything. <laughs> that could happen too. But you got to stay positive because I'm Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. But Which that could be a positive. Well. No, that person could be going to hell. In terms of textbooks, so we thought, but that's the that's the that's the uh, the some these are some of the questions uh, um, that are related to all of this, right? You want to say something? Mm -hmm. Okay. I feel like that's good to give them benefit of the doubt, though. Because isn't it a prayer? <laughs> then you should give itself? then you should give Osama bin Laden the benefit of the doubt too. Yeah, but if I but if I know he's Osama bin Laden. Yeah, but everything you know about him is on the news. How much you know? How much of uh, what you know about him is real? Don 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 don. That's true. <laughs> There's I'm just saying, if I were to recognize, like if it was another terrorist, and I didn't know he was a terrorist, okay. and he was going around, he Then you'd give him the benefit of the doubt, yeah. Maybe I would say Islam because okay. I don't know he's a terrorist. Okay. But with okay. Osama bin Laden, like even with Osama bin Laden, there's like a lot of conspiracy theories, so, okay. you know. Okay. Maybe I would say Islam, you never know. Okay, but, uh, I mean, the point is still the same, that um, uh, the person who, from a dunya level, uh, is doing all kinds of bad stuff, is not the same as the person from a theology level um, is someone who's doing all kinds of bad stuff. Right. right. Um, you were saying something? Yeah. No, never mind. <laughs> okay. Alright, let's continue. So, I am seeking... I am seeking to say the word Islam in a manner that expresses the historical and human phenomenon that is Islam in its plentitude and complexity of meaning. In conceptualizing Islam as a human and historical phenomenon, I am precisely not seeking to tell the reader what Islam is as a matter of divine command, and thus am not seeking to prescribe how Islam should be followed as the means to exem existential existential salvation. Yeah. So, so this is a point we made earlier. He's not telling. He's not trying to with this book say here's how a Muslim is supposed to be according to what God wants. Okay. What he's saying is this big, giant phenomenon of people throughout history, what is Islam? Meaning, what is it that ties them all together? There's another book that came out, you know, like 20 years ago um, by Clifford Geertz, who was an anthropologist, 
and I forgot the, the name of, of the book, uh, but he, as an anthropologist, is looking at what do Muslims in the western end of the Muslim world, which is Morocco, what do they do that is similar to what the Muslims in the eastern end of the Muslim world, which is, uh, he's saying, Indonesia, what is common among them? Who was the name of the guy? Uh, Clifford Geertz. Okay, I think that was a book that we were going to read in the anthropology class. Oh, it was called Islam Observed. That's just, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. yeah. And so, so that's how he was trying to answer this question. Um, if maybe we look at people at the opposite ends of the world to see what's common, maybe that can uh, give us our answer. Right. Uh, okay, continue. Oh, yeah, that also reminded me. When this gets into practical matters, like when does this matter? So it could be on things like social pleasantries, like, you know, who do you say salam to, who do you not? Um, but more it comes down to who do you pray behind, right? Um, if someone's a member of the Nation of Islam and they're leading prayer, would you pray behind them? Probably not. Okay. Yeah. Meaning, um, in terms of like textbooks on Shia Islam, they're not Muslim. So if you pray behind them, it's not going to count. Or marriage, right? Um, then it comes down to uh, with whom can you get married. Um, secondarily, it would also be like, you know, some, some uh, more on the conservative side of Islamic law would say that you can't even eat with them uh, and you should keep your distance from them, right? Uh, but, um, but usually the, the main place it plays out is marriage and, and prayer. So, processing, anything on it? No, yeah. I'm just thinking about myself and what I would do mm. because I'm with um, like people from the nation all the time mm. and I was just at an event and I don't know what the the grandson of Elijah Muhammad um, adheres to but he was there and it's Sultan or there's a bunch of them in, in Hyde Park there's Sultan he's really tall okay neither of these guys are tall like you notice him right when he's in a huh, I wonder who that is okay but um but yeah, okay. I think I'd even like pray. Just mm -hmm. So at the Nation of Islam, they have two Jummahs. One is essentially a Sunni Jummah, and then uh, the other will be a Nation of Islam Jummah. You know. um, but then, uh, so Sultan Muhammad is, has been pulled into the Nation of Islam sort of for its transition, its post-Louis Farrakhan uh, transition. And then, a couple miles to the north at uh, Masjid al-Fatir, you have Sultan's cousin, Omar Muhammad, also, uh, they're both grandchildren of Elijah Muhammad. Um, uh, Omar Muhammad uh, is very vocal in regarding people of the Nation of Islam as people who are offending and rejecting Islam. Okay. Mm. And he won't even come close to them. Okay. Um, and <coughs> they're, they're the same family. Yeah. Okay, but that's, that's the stuff that we're, we're exploring. Okay, let's continue. Rather, I seek to tell the reader what Islam has actually been as a matter of human fact in history, and thus I'm suggesting how Islam should be conceptualized as a means to a more meaningful understanding both of Islam and the human experience, and thus of the human experience at large. If I hold out a salvific pros prospect, it is the altogether more modest, but perhaps no less elusive one of analytical clarity. Okay, so basically when he's saying, if I hold out a salvific prospect, he's saying, you know, if there's something I really want for myself, it's basically analytical clarity. So salvation, you know, if, like something that I want to gain from this, it's clarity. So I'm writing this book to help figure out this answer for myself. Okay, okay let's read a little bit more. Continue this book. Oh, me. This book stems from a certain dissatisfaction with the prevailing conceptualizations of Islam as object and of Islam as category, which, in my view, critically impair our ability to recognize central and crucial aspects of the historical reality of the very object phenomenon Islam that our conceptualizations seek to denote, but, falls, but fall short of so doing. Okay, so a couple terms here, object phenomenon. Uh, you're going to see this term phenomenon over and over again. So basically, this thing that, that is uh, Islam, that has people who identify themselves as part of it, and has historical artifacts that we can connect to it, um, what is it that binds all of them together? Uh, I'll give you, um, you know, I mean, or, so this is also a question that you explore in, in academic study of Islam, which is what he's, where he is, and uh, one way that I answer this for myself is, okay, remove the label of Islam. 
who are the people who connect themselves to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and then what are the different ways that people then manifest that, right? Uh, for me, that becomes easier because now you're not talking about the idea of Islam, you're talking about a person in history and how do people connect themselves to that person. Meaning, I don't know of anyone who self-identifies as Muslim who does not uh, give prominence to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So even this agnostic earlier will still, you know, acknowledge something about the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, continue. By conceptualization, I mean a general idea by which the object Islam may be identified and classified, such that the connection to Islam of all those things purportedly encompassed by, consequent upon or otherwise related to the concept, what is to be expressed by the word Islamic, may coherently be known, characterized, and valorized. Mm-hmm. Any, any act of conceptualizing an any object is necessarily an attempt to identify a general theory or, or rule to which all phenomena affiliated with that object somehow cohere as a category for meaningful analysis, whether we locate the general rule in idea, practice, substance, relation, or process. Okay, so this is the same point we're making. Try to imagine this for yourself. Like, what would you define as Islam? And um, what would that exclude? So Abu Hanifa's approach to this back, you know, about a hundred years after the Prophet's death, peace be upon him, he sees all these people that are self-identifying as Muslim, and he's saying there's fundamental problems in their doctrine. So then he starts the field which he called uh, al-fiqh, al-fiqh al-akbar. So the big fiqh, um, and then which is in our language uh, theology. Now that's more or less called aqida. Okay. And then al-fiqh al-asghar, the small fiqh, is what we today refer to as Islamic law. Okay? Nobody uses the term al-fiqh al-asghar. Um, but even the term aqidah, um, the root aqd, is, is you know, tying yourself. So what is it that ties yourself into Islam? Okay? And so he writes this book that is, I don't know if it's sitting here, but essentially, well, I mean, here's a variation of this book. Um, if you skip past all of the nice formatting and everything, uh, see, that's not even the book, that's the, uh, that's biographies. This is, uh, of Imam al-Tahawi. So, if you skip past the Arabic and the nice formatting, this whole book is like five paragraphs long, literally, right? Maybe ten paragraphs. And so, so he's saying, this, everything we list here is what we find in our primary sources as saying that if you believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, if you believe there's no God but God, Muhammad's a messenger of God, peace be upon him, then you also have to believe these other things, like the existence of angels, like previous prophets and all that stuff, right? And so that's how he answered it, okay? And then that, so this book that we're looking at is 300 years later, is a variation or expansion on, on that book, okay? And so it comes down to defining who is, who is not a Muslim. This is an issue in every single religious tradition, identifying who is not of us, and who is. Okay. What's the risk of that? Pushing people away. And then what? And then they become enemies. Okay. So one risk is potentially that you might push people away. And then the people on the inside will say, yeah, but they're already away anyway. But you might turn them into enemies, right? Or if you are a majority population, that's a doorway towards persecution. So an example of that is the Ahmadis. So it's in the 1970s and 80s that the Ahmadis are officially identified in Pakistan as non-Muslim. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you're, if you're an Ahmadi, by, Islamic, by Pakistani law, you are a non-Muslim. Okay? And then if that be, seeps through the sentiment of the people, then those people will become uh, persecuted, right? which is exactly what happens in, in Pakistan. It's kind of like what is happening to us right now. Right, all the attention being given to Muslims as a threat to society, is it even a real religion, this and that, same thing. Um, It's harder in our society to make that something related to the law, but there are definitely groups that are trying to push it very aggressively. And have been little by little before the current president getting more and more uh, successful. But the point is that, yeah, when you're defining who's in, you're doing it because you want integrity of belief. But then there are going to be other social consequences uh, to, to all that. Okay, let's continue.
A meaningful conceptualization of Islam as theoretical object and analytical category must come to terms with, indeed be coherent with, the capaciousness, <laughs> complexity, and often outright contradiction that obtains within the historical phenomenon that has proceeded from the human engagement with the idea and reality of divine communication to Muhammad, the messenger of God. Okay, so, I mean, this is more, again, um, the same point we've been discussing, that, all right, if you're going to have a conceptualization of Islam, you have to address the whole thing, including all the contradictions. This is also the same issue in, in academics trying to define what is a religion. So there's all kinds of theories of religion. A religion is this whole body of, of thought and people that has a value system. It has a way that people congregate. Uh, it has celebrations. Um, it has uh, ideas of success and failure. Um, and then someone says that, okay, what you just described is, you know, Major League Baseball or the NFL. And, and for some people, they are far more serious or as serious about Sunday football as the person in the church next door is um, serious about, about their beliefs. And the, or someone else will say, well, okay, well, you're describing capitalism. Is that a religion? Um, and so it's the same difficulty. How do we define what is a religion if you have all these different variations? You know, I had one teacher who says that it's a religion if it involves some sort of superhuman ability or being. And then he has some other aspects, but um, that was the core of, of what he was saying. Um, but, yeah, so... How and then would people argue that, like, capitalism is a super being? So there, I mean, but uh, in terms of technically capitalism, they're saying there's nothing beyond, you know, the human realm. Okay. Right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, continue. It is um, precisely... It is precisely this correspondence and coherence between Islam as theoretical object or analytical category in Islam as real historical phenomenon that is considerably and crucially lacking in the prevalent conceptualizations of the term Islam Islamic. It is just such a coherent conceptualization of Islam that I aim to put forward in this book. Okay, so uh, let's stop right here. Next time we'll continue with the greatest challenge to a coherent conceptualization. Any questions or thoughts? So when you said the outright contradiction, he's talking about the contradiction between the ideal Islam and then human practice Islam. So, um, so in his outlook, he's not calling anything an ideal Islam. What you are referring to as an ideal Islam um, versus what you're referring to as a contradiction, you're basically saying people who aren't practicing their Islam. That's not what he's saying. Okay. He's saying that um, what he's saying is basically you have people who self-identify wholeheartedly as Muslim, and they have these other people who self-identify wholeheartedly as Muslim, right. and you can find major contradictions okay. in what they might even consider to be good behavior or pious behavior. Right? And even if we spoke about the ideal, what, when do we see the ideal in, Islamic, in, in human history? When do we see the ideal Islam practiced? So the Prophet, peace upon him, and the Sahaba. Right. Right? That's the Sunni perspective. But the Sahaba also had a major war right? Right. Uh, within just decades after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, then how do we reconcile that? Right. Within Sunni, Sunni thought, they'll say that okay, the, the political difference is normal. Okay. And what's, even if we look at it from the perspective of political difference, one of the amazing things about them is that then they still establish peace afterwards, but when it's time to pray, they all still pray together. Right. So it's Maghrib time, they all stop and pray Maghrib. The battle's on hold, and then, then, then they go back to battle. Right. And so our conception of war even works very differently than, mm -hmm. than back then. Right. Um, but yeah, but that's uh, how I'm understanding what he's saying. Any other thoughts or questions? With the eating, yeah. um, like you said that it, you're supposed to stay away from people who, I mean, like just aren't good Muslims, um, or aren't Muslim in general, right? Isn't that... I mean, I mean some, uh, the more conservative schools will say um, that you do not interact with those people whose theology is wrong. Yeah. Well, so that would be anybody who's not Muslim like you. Um, not, I mean, we're not talking about how good they are in terms of practicing. So we're saying your belief is different than your practice. Right. So um, back to the Isha example, right? right? So I can pray all my Ishas, but if I say it's just voluntary, okay, that's different than someone who doesn't pray at all right. says it's mandatory. Right. So the conservatives would say to stay away from the person who says that Isha isn't Correct. obligatory. Yeah. So... I mean, I'll give you an example. 
when I was much younger, there was one of those family parties, like, you know, people and all their get-togethers on a Friday night or something, and there was one, one of the older people um, um, who we were all just sitting there, just chatting, and I don't know how we got on the topic of religion. He was saying, yeah, you don't have to pray. God doesn't need your prayers. You should do it for yourself, but God doesn't need your prayers. And you know, in my mind, I was like, man, you're stupid, right? I mean, that's how I thought of everybody at that time. Um, um, but the sad part is, every time I think about him, I think about that event, mm. okay? And then add to that the fact that of his two children, no, uh, he has one son who's basically left the dean, oh. right? And what keeps triggering in my mind is, well, if that's your outlook, then why would he stay in the dean? Mm. It, it, it probably has nothing to do with why he's left the dean. But um, the point being that um, on the more conservative side, they'll say, okay, if someone's theology is wrong, you should stay away from them. And they'll use Quran to prove it. They'll say they'll, those people will be identified as monophic, as hypocrites. Right. And the Quran is saying, you know, you know, don't interact with the hypocrites. Let Allah deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's not an answer to this question right yeah. now, but like, in my experience, is much more limited and ignorant than everyone else is in this room. But the second I dude, you did faithful nations. <laughs> the second I stepped off this campus, most of the Muslim interactions I've had have been with um, students, like you mentioned in mm -hmm. the beginning of this talk. Mm -hmm. And to me, my whole perspective has changed. It's like everyone's just trying to hold on to like some bit of the rope or some piece of the coal. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so I. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious to see if, because like, that conservative opinion, I understand the need to define that mm -hmm. when we went through Akita and Faith Foundations, mm -hmm. but at the same time, like, people are just trying to hold on to the mm -hmm. goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would probably be more uh, too strict for most people. Um, and that's, in Judaism, that's what gave rise to Reform Judaism. That you have Orthodox Judaism, which is, which is the people who are trying to be textually sound in terms of their practice of Judaism. Then you have reform, which is basically people who feel Jewish in their heart and may or may not have any Jewish practices, including kosher, Sabbath, any of that stuff, yeah. right? And the way it plays out, 150 years or so after the invention of uh, Reform Judaism, 80% of the Jews in America are reform, right? And that's exactly what's going to happen with us. Um, whatever, whatever the Muslim version of Reform Judaism is the 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 seeds already there? Yeah. And right now it isn't growing much because people aren't putting money into it. But that's probably going to happen quite a bit in the next few years, not more than the next decade. Well, can't there be a good um, combination of both? Okay. Like for you to be a good practicing textbook Muslim, I guess. Okay. But then socially be aware of everybody around you, like the complexities and stuff, and okay. be open to that. Like, because okay. I feel like. Not eating with people of, like, basically everybody who's wrong, according okay. to okay. the textbook. Um, that doesn't help. Help what? And that limits, like, anybody. What does that mean? Because you're not interacting with anybody else. Okay. You're just sitting in your, like, like-minded okay. sphere. Um, and then that's not helping them because if you were to engage in conversations and stuff and actually help them, I don't know, okay. like, at least talk about it, you know, that could open up something in their mind. Okay. Um, and that could open up more things, like, you can become more tolerant of other people. Okay. Um, so I just, like, I feel like it would be a loss on okay. both ends. But so, can't you be a good textbook Muslim, like, practice well, but also interact with others okay. and try and help them out? Kind of like what you're doing. Who says that? I'm not that first kind. I know, but... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of what we made earlier about how um, if you alienate people and you might create enemies. Okay. And I'm also thinking about how a lot of people in some in this university and other universities uh, don't hang out with MSA people uh -huh. because they consider them like they feel like ostracized a little bit. Meaning a lot of people who self-identify as Muslim right. mm -hmm. don't yeah. hang out with MSA people, okay? Because they feel like they're being judged and that uh -huh. they're not welcoming. I think okay. that conservatism is is isn't helpful to bring people in and okay. just push people away. Okay. So what if uh, uh, I am of the outlook, so hypothetical me, that you shouldn't be interacting with these people whose theology is wrong. We're not talking about people who are sinning. Right. Okay? We're saying that the theology is wrong. But I'm still courteous with everyone. Okay. And if it's like a matter of justice, then it doesn't matter what your religion is. It's a matter of finding out who's right, who's wrong. And let's say I, I adhere to all those. But in terms of my own social interactions, 
I keep my distance. Right? What about that? Because in Ed, because I'm in my understanding, this is what Allah is prescribing for me to do. Okay? And so, for example, in Surah At-Tawbah, there's a there's a, a reference to this masjid called Masjid Dirar. What's Dirar mean? It's like this community formed. It's a fake mosque that's been formed, and basically there, it's not saying to let them be. Uh, the sentiment that's commonly in, interpreted is, okay, that mosque has to be destroyed. Okay. This is the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then, um, there's this uh, uh, narration attributed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, where he speaks about, about the men who don't come for the daily prayers. He says, he's quoted as saying, I wish I didn't have to lead prayers, because I would take um, you know, a bucket of oil and burn down their houses. This is the Prophet, peace be upon him, who's saying this. Yeah. <laughs> So, so what we're sort of illustrating is, is the contradiction of the distance between that which is coming from the text, which the believers are saying is coming from Allah, and that which in our society we're saying is, is uh, you know, appropriate uh, uh, conduct, right? Meaning, there have been multiple cases where people have come to me asking me to perform their marriage, and I've said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You know, um, mm-hmm. um, the most common case is Muslim woman marrying a non-Muslim man, mm-hmm. and I'll tell them, "Yeah, I can't do it." I'll even try to convince them: Is there a way that you know, you know, we can get him to modify his beliefs and and such, um, um, or you know, a gay marriage, right? And I'm very open in saying, "Hey, the gay marriage fight is not the Muslim fight." You know, if you're going to fight gay marriage, you should be at more than that. You should be fighting the casinos that are in Chicago and such and addressing violence and all those things, gay marriage is a tiny blip, right? Um, um, and so I think it's, it's ridiculous for Muslims to be fighting against gay marriage. And in the same conversation I'm saying, even with, with gay colleagues, gay friends, that, yeah, I can't justify performing a gay marriage, right? Um, and, and so, because I'm saying that in my understanding of the text, yeah, I can't, right? Um, but it's a short matter of time in, before you're going to find the vast majority of marriages in the Muslim community are going to be, you know, if it's, uh, it'll be a Muslim to a non-Muslim. Yeah. That's exactly what happened in the Jewish community, right? And that's also part of the reason why Reform Judaism rose, because these marriages were not being recognized in, in Orthodox Judaism, right? Because you can't convert. If your mother's not Jewish, you're not Jewish. And so I have this friend who's a rabbi whose mother is a convert, and he's a rabbi, who married a convert, and he's saying, according to the Orthodox community, I'm not Jewish, right? even though I'm a rabbi of a, of a, of a congregation. Um, and so that's exactly what you're going to see. I mean, each year the number of women who approach me and ask me to do their marriages increases. And then I go back to the whole community of scholars saying, okay, we got to figure something out about this, because the current generation uh, of Muslims might still try to stay within Islam, um, but the generation of those younger than them are going to say, all right, if you're not going to do it, then I'll just do it at church then. Right? And so these are serious uh, issues to be addressed, for which I don't think there are satisfactory answers being given right now. Yeah. 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 You're going to say something uh, earlier? Yeah. No, it, well, since you've already read this book, has it, like, because this is kind of the crux of the issue right now, especially when you look at, like, like terrorism is just uh-huh. going to keep increasing. Uh-huh. And, like, that the um, hadith you said about the oil and uh-huh. the, like you can easily see how that's being manipulated yeah, on that one side uh-huh. and then we're losing all these Muslims on the other uh-huh. did this like ch- do you feel like this book will help people answer that question of like no <laughs> it's just <laughs> this is an academic book yeah I mean I think uh, this book is very very useful uh, because uh, I mean the way it it plays out for everyone is, okay, my outlook is the most correct. On the spectrum, mm. I might be identified as conservative or I might be identified as liberal. And, and liberals tend to be just as stubborn about their beliefs as conservatives are, right? And, and so um, I, don't think, I don't think this book is seeking to change anything. So doing the work that you do, do you just take it case by case yeah. and try and navigate? Literally every single case is case by case, yeah. And the more details I know, the more it would change my approach. And uh, so commonly, if someone comes up to me after a Jummah Khutbah with a one-sentence question, 
I'm going to give them, you know, the most general standard answer. Mm -hmm. If they give me, you know, a half hour, two hour explanation, then almost guaranteed is going to get a different answer. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, thus it becomes case by case. That's why, like, you know, you'll often hear, hear me railing <coughs> against the idea of going to YouTube for scholars and such. You know, the further someone is away from you physically, the less they're connected to your world. Mm -hmm. Right? No matter how charismatic they are. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Even with the Prophet, um, so I had said him like with the example that you just gave. Yeah. There's so many examples of him um, caring for people. And of course, but is he? How is he addressing the hypocrites? <laughs> okay, so this was for the hypocrites. Uh -huh. the but hip I, okay, but I feel like if so, you're meeting a person on a one-on-one -on -one basis, right? Yeah. Like, you're going to go and you're going to burn all those houses. But if you have a little... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, he's speaking of a hypothetical. He doesn't right. actually do it. But yeah. I'm saying if it does happen, yeah. right? Like, you set out to do that. Uh -huh. And then you have somebody come out um, from there. Yeah. Like, I don't feel like he would outright hate that person. Okay, well, I mean, I don't know if it's a question of hate or not. So let's, let's phrase it differently. So Abdullah ibn Ubayy was regarded as the king of the hypocrites. Ra'is al-Munafiqun, right, the mm -hmm. king of Munafiqin, the king of the hypocrites. And when he died, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is praying for his forgiveness. And then Allah says to him, okay, you can pray 60 times and this person's not going to be forgiven. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and, and so, uh, or, you know, what I also find scary are the passages on zina. Okay. So, like three short ayahs, uh, what surah is it? Surah... Uh, Ahzab or Surah Nur? Nur. Yeah. And so, so um, there it's even saying, okay, you give them their punishment and do not let your compassion overtake you. Meaning, you do this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is that, okay, uh, is it fair to say that the vast majority of Islam is very gentle? Absolutely. The vast, vast, vast majority. But there are still aspects of Islam that are addressing what we call like the bitter realities of life, mm. like war. There are times where war is prescribed, right? Um, and so that's, I mean, you can't get any bigger example of that. There's times where killing, you know, um, is, is prescribed or, you know, capital punishment. And, yeah, uh, it's fair to say that the default of Islam is gentleness, the default of Islam is peace, and all those things. But then there are times... When it's the other way around. Yeah. There's this group of people who said, Assalamu alaikum to the Prophet, peace be upon him, which translates as, you know, curse be upon you, but they're trying oh, to make yeah. it like, Assalamu yeah. alaikum. And how does he respond? Wa alaik. So, and you too. Huh? Right? Or, I mean, uh, his first public uh, speaking about Islam is, you know, he, he is standing on Safa, right outside, right in front of the Kaaba which is what their routine was if you want to make an announcement. And he's saying, you know, my people, if, you, uh, if I told you there's an army coming from behind this hill, would you believe me? Yeah, you've never lied to us. He says, and I'm warning you about a coming day of judgment. Abu Lahab yells at him, and then he recites Surah Lahab, which is basically saying, line after line, you're going to roast in hell. You're going to roast in hell. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. You're going to roast in hell. Your wife is going to roast in hell. And that surprises everyone, because that's not how the prophet talks. And that's his first public statement, right? So, so my point is that, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm agreeing with you in the sense that um, the, the normal disposition should be gentleness, but there are boundaries. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm yeah. just talking about the default, which is yeah. what I'm more focused on. Yeah. But here, he's just saying, you know, what seems, it uh, doesn't seem like there's one default. Yeah. yeah. Saying that if you look at Islamic history, there seems to be multiple defaults. From an Akhirah perspective, we may discover, yeah, all of them are going to get, like, thrown in hell. Or we may not. Because we always quote the one hadith, we don't quote the other. We quote this one hadith that says, you know, the Christians had 70, uh, the Jews had 71 sects, uh, the Christians had 72 sects, and the Muslims are going to have 73 sects, and they're all going to go to hell except for one. No one quotes the other one. What's the other one? Sorry? So, all of them are going to go to paradise except for one. Ah, no one quotes that one. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> yeah. Wait, what happened? So, oh, so the there's one narration of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where he says, among the Muslims are going to be 73 different groups. Yeah. And all of them except for one are going to go to hell. 
Oh, yeah. gonna go. Oh, okay. Yeah, so one's gonna go to paradise. But then he has another narration yeah. that sounds like That's the exact opposite, right? And but that doesn't tell us anything about the percentage. Yeah. What if in the first narration that one is ninety-five percent of the Muslim community, yeah. or it's three percent? You know, we don't know. We're not gonna find out until we're on the other side. What if uh, the sects are different to God? What does that mean? So like. Maybe everybody that says la 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 there in one second. So there's definitely those narrations, um, but it doesn't mean they're going to go straight to paradise. Right. No, I'm saying, but like, like what if us as humans... Laura's like, I don't know why. Like, I'm not in the right group. Yeah, (laughs) she's like, I I was so happy that I was in, um, you know, my social sciences, you know, know, social social work, yeah. Um, Like, what if the way humans define sex is different than the way, like, God looks at them? Well, it's going to be God's decision. Right. He's the one who's going to judge. And this narration is more scary, right? (laughs) So, again, that's outside the realm of what he is addressing. The way to look at what he's saying is that if you look at the history of Islam, it's hard to say that there's a default, right? Or he's trying to figure out what is the default that's common among all these. So that's the analysis. Yeah, yeah. As we'll see um, in, in the next part, He's going to look at it from six particular perspectives, some of which are sociological, some of them are philosophical. But it's interesting because people might be like, oh, it's just a sociological analysis, yeah. but in reality, like, that's the analysis under which everyone's pretty much operating yeah. in terms of how they're treating each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, and those different eras, people were doing what they believed was Islam. Yeah. Right? And so what will happen is people 300 years from now are going to look at us, and we're doing what we think is Islam, and they're going to look at us and say, how could they be doing that, right? Um, whatever that is. Right? In the same way, we look at past generations. You know? And it's stuff that's probably right before our eyes, but it's so common we don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. You know? so, any other questions or thoughts? Okay, we're going to have some fun discussions, inshallah. All right, we'll stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين